You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. When Yahweh your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when Yahweh your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of Yahweh would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. Know therefore that Yahweh your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face." You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, Yahweh your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the incense of your herds, and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And Yahweh will take away from you all sickness, and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew, will he afflict on you, but he will lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that Yahweh your God will give over to you. Your eye shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. If you say in your heart, These nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what Yahweh your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which Yahweh your God brought you out. So will Yahweh your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, Yahweh your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for Yahweh your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. 
Yahweh your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But Yahweh your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to Yahweh your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 654 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, July 5th, 2023. That was a reading of Deuteronomy chapter 7. And of course, of course, if you are an American, you know, if you're from any country under heaven, you probably know that yesterday was the birthday for the United States of America. The 4th of July, the 4th of July, 1776, that is when the Declaration of Independence was signed at Independence Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That is when the Continental Congress gathered together, officiated, and affirmed that they were declaring themselves an independent country, separate and distinct from Great Britain, separate and distinct from the King of England and Scotland, the kingdom that they had come from, was not actually protecting them, not respecting their rights, not protecting them from Indians, but actually making them rather more vulnerable to Indians, not protecting their property, not protecting their right to speak freely or to have representation, all of which the kingdom that they were coming from and had been a part of had violated its responsibilities, its oaths. In a certain sense, you could say, well, these men were breaking their oaths to the king. But then in another sense, you have to say, who broke the oath in actual fact? Who broke the covenant? Who broke the sacred bond between that king and his people? Was that bond broken with the Declaration of Independence or was the Declaration of Independence a recognition that the bond had already been severed, the ties had already been severed by faithlessness and a certain lawlessness on the part of the king. King George was not fulfilling his duties. He was not taking care of his people. In fact, whenever they would object or complain or try to assert a very reasonable voice giving to their own affairs, he was finding very clever ways to make that not possible. And he knew what he was doing, and they knew what he was doing. And this wasn't a new thing, as in it wasn't as though in a moment of impatience and petulance, these colonists 
decided, hair trigger, well, we don't like this little thing, and we're going to declare independence. We're going to throw off the yoke of King George. It was a long train of abuses that led up to this moment. And actually, it was a multi-generational thing. It was not just this King George who had disregarded their rights as individuals, as men, the rights of their families and their friends and their countrymen here in the New World. It was not just this King George. It was a line of kings who had trampled on the rights of their subjects. And then finally, enough was enough. Enough was enough, and this seemed to these men who gathered together at Independence Hall an existential crisis, a moment for deciding, and insofar as they were also authorities in the colonies. They were authorities over their families, their households, but then also in their local communities. They could not in good conscience sit idly by and quietly, mutely endure or affirm by their silence and their passivity how King George was abusing the people under their own authority, under their own watch and care. It would have been irresponsible. It would have been negligent. It would have been wrong for them to have said nothing, done nothing, and just continued on affirming the status quo. And so what did they do instead? They gathered together. They debated. They deliberated. They discussed it. And there was a lot of back and forth about, should we do this thing? There's really not any going back. Once we do this thing, once we assert that we are a separate and distinct people, we're going to have to put our money where our mouth is. We're going to have to fight. And we're going to have to support those who fight to maintain this document, this declaration. We're announcing to the world that we are a separate and distinct people. We're going to have to be willing to fight to defend that declaration. And they did. It was not quick. It was not easy, but they did. And they did so successfully. And I believe strongly from my reading of history, my reading of biographies of men who were there and who signed that declaration or who were adjacent. And even if they didn't sign, they were supportive. They were encouraging it, men and women who said, yes, this is what has to be. This needs to happen. In my reading, I believe strongly that these men and their communities were very conscious of passages like Deuteronomy chapter 7, where you have a covenant between God and his people. That was a familiar concept to the founding fathers' generation in a way that it's not familiar for so many of us. This covenant that God had established with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and with the people of Israel— was, I bring you out of slavery, I set you free, I bring you into a good land, I provide for and protect you, you obey me, you don't worship other gods. That's how this is going to work. I tell you how to treat one another, how to treat your neighbors within Israel and also without neighboring nations, other nations. I tell you how to relate to me and to other people, and you do it. And that's how this is going to work. I have declared you my possession, my people. I make a covenant with you. I'm going to provide and protect, and you're going to do what I say. Thus saith the Lord. But there's also a warning in passages like Deuteronomy 7 that if you are derelict in your duty, if you neglect the obedience portion, you have also therefore neglected 
the faith portion and you have also therefore neglected the love for God portion here. And so what God is telling the people of Israel here in Deuteronomy 7 and elsewhere is if you don't love me, if you don't trust me, if you don't obey me, then you have shown yourselves to be not my people. If a future generation of you, which I will bless right up until, if a future generation is totally disobedient and faithless and loveless towards the Lord their God, then I will destroy you. And not only does he say he will destroy them, he says he will destroy them quickly. And not only does he say he will repay those who hate him, because it's not just a question of love or no love, it's a question of love or hate, he will repay those who hate him to their face, as in he's going to be very purposeful and they will know that it is God who has destroyed them. I believe very firmly from my studying of our country's history and the history of the peoples who came to the new world from principally the British Isles, I believe very strongly that those people were very biblically literate and they understood these concepts in a way that very often today with doctrinal minimalism and ecumenicism, we don't understand these things. With our emphasis on what Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace, we don't understand this idea of a covenant being a two-way street to some extent. Now, we might be disobedient sometimes. We might have sin unintentional sometimes. We may not always do what we ought to do because we still have a sinful nature. We might not always refrain from doing what we ought not to do because of our sinful nature. But there is a difference between, ah, I'm so grieved that I messed up. I didn't do that the way I should have done that. I didn't say what I should have said in that situation. There's a difference between that, where as soon as you realize your mistake, you confess, you repent, you ask God for forgiveness, and then you turn from that sin. You make a conscious, consistent, deliberate effort, a comprehensive and holistic effort to turn away from that sin on the one hand, and on the other hand, sinning that grace might abound all the more, giving no thought to obedience because you say, I'm under grace, grace, grace. That kind of faith, if you want to call it that, is no faith at all. That kind of faith cannot save. That kind of faith is not actually the kind of faith that should expect grace. You may have for a time a delay in judgment while others who really do fear God and love God and serve God call you to repentance and warn you and plead with you and try to set a good example for you so that there is no excuse, so that there is no blood on their hands. You may have a time where you don't experience judgment just yet when that's your condition, but that time is supposed to be a time for you to repent, not a time for you to say, oh, well, nothing bad is happening, and therefore I'm just going to carry on like this. It's been working out fine so far. The idea is to turn away from your sins and to seek after God, because God has extended grace to you out of thankfulness. You should be looking to fulfill your responsibilities. And so as I'm thinking about yesterday, with it being the 4th of July, it being Independence Day here in the United States, the day we celebrate the birth of this country, the United States of America, out of 13 colonies, which had formerly been possessions of the British crown, 
as I think about our celebrations yesterday with dear friends and family, Pavliks and Bergmans and Crosses and others as well besides, I think about how we are free in Christ and how we're not supposed to use that freedom in Christ as an occasion for sin. You're not supposed to use the blessings that God has blessed you with as an opportunity to rebel against God. That won't work, and God is very clear he is not going to put up with that. There are repercussions. There will be judgment. There will be wrath at a certain point. And on the other hand, if you use what God has given you to honor him really truly, if you obey his commands, if you are faithful, and you are following after, and you are serving because you love, because you fear, because you trust God, there is blessing. And so just briefly, I think about yesterday gathering together with these other families and all of these children running around and having a good time and adults sitting and talking and laughing and watching a parade, which we had the pleasure of watching on the UNC campus, watching it go by from a very shady vantage on the side of the road, in the grass, our lawn chairs out, kids running and grabbing candy as the candy was thrown from the parade floats and vehicles and other things. I think about all these kids running around and playing with water and then trying to get out of the rain real quick and some of the older boys getting together and playing some board games and then us older men playing a board game as well, sitting and talking and having a good time. And I think about how all of that is contingent on having a home, having a place to live, having a vehicle to drive us there, having the means to be able to buy the food at the store, bring it back and cook it, having something to cook it on, having chairs to sit in. These are material blessings that don't come from nowhere. They don't come about randomly. These children that we're running and playing and having a good time and gathering together to watch the fireworks at the end of our time together last night. These children don't come from nowhere. They're not accidents. They're not random occurrences. They're not mistakes. God is a God of order, and God said he would bless those who love him with children, and he has blessed us with children, and we're thankful for that. He has blessed us and provided for us and protected us in so many ways, And I think about how we as a country have to remember that. We have to be called to remembrance of that. And we have to live in light of that goodness and that beauty and that truth if we want to endure, if we want to continue being a country, if we want to continue living in this kind of celebratory fashion. And we should want that. The people who don't want that, who rail against it cynically, who try and come up with every possible excuse they can think of, for why we shouldn't celebrate, why we shouldn't be happy, why we shouldn't be enjoying or thanking God for these material blessings, those people need to do some soul searching and they need to be called out. And the ones who are misguided because they're simple and they have been taken in by the woman folly, they need to be called to enjoy a meal in the house of the woman wisdom because it's not wise that they're so cynical. It's not good. It won't come to a good end. The woman Fali has a home that leads down to Sheol. And the simple who go in on her invitation don't realize that on the front end, but that's why they need to be warned. And the woman wisdom would warn them. 
and say, no, come to my banquet. I have set my table in my house, my beautiful house with seven pillars. I have set my table with my meat that I prepared. I slaughtered my animals that I raised. They were my animals. I slaughtered my animals and I have served up this meat and this bread and I have mixed my wine. Come and eat with me and become wise. Let me teach you my ways. Let me teach you how to be self-sufficient and to have your own house. Don't covet somebody else's house. Don't steal somebody else's house. Don't tear somebody else's house down because it's nicer than yours when you haven't worked to get your own. But also don't sit idly by, if you're wise, when the simple are being led away into stealing and destroying because they're covetous, because they're thieves, because they're liars. Don't sit idly by. If you actually really understand the contrast between the woman wisdom and the woman folly, when they make their invitations to have a meal in their houses, when you understand that the woman wisdom has started with building a house, having a table of her own, having livestock of her own that she raises for meat, having her own wine and having her own maidservants that she sends out as messengers, having her own ability to throw a party and offer up a feast is being used to appeal to those moderate folks, those middle-of-the-road folks, those centrists who could go either way because they're simple. They could go either way. The woman wisdom understands that if she wants to continue having this big, beautiful house and this beautiful table and these animals to slaughter at the appropriate time and turn into delicious meat for a feast, if she wants to continue having this vineyard wherein she grows grapes that then in their season can be plucked and pressed and turned into wine that you then mix and serve to your guests, if she wants to continue having the ability to do all of that, she has to get involved in the community. She has to be interested in what the simple-minded folk are being told by nefarious influencers in the community. She has to care about that. It's not none of her business. It's very much her business. And actually, again, the Founding Fathers understood this, and part of how we know that they understood this is because they wrote the Declaration of Independence very self-consciously out of a respect an appropriate respect, a decent respect for the opinions of mankind. They weren't contemptuous and they weren't careless in giving their reasons. They gave their reasons for declaring independence from Britain to the world so that the world would know this is why we're setting ourselves apart. This is why we are declaring independence. This is why we are going to form a new government that will protect our interests, protect our people, and protect us as we do what is right, what God has called us to. We are one nation under God. All men are created equal. This goes back to the source of authority, which the king had clearly forgotten. And you, you know, right? You know he had forgotten that our responsibilities and our rights come from God. He had forgotten that, as was made evident by his actions, by his way of relating to his subjects, his careless disregard for their rights, their needs, their responsibilities before God 
demonstrated his own lack of care for God, his own lack of love for God, his own lack of fear of God, his own lack of faith in God. And so this people on this new continent said, that's it. We can't do this anymore. We are declaring independence. And you say, oh, but that was going to lead to a fight. I just don't know. I I don't know if that was responsible. Here's the thing. It does take two to tango, but that doesn't mean what you've been so often told it means. It takes two to tango shouldn't mean you never stand for anything. You never say what's true because somebody might throw a punch at you. It takes two to tango means that the guy who throws the punch is responsible for throwing the punch. The Declaration of Independence only led to the Revolutionary War because King George insisted on sending troops and fighting his own subjects who were no longer his subjects. They were saying, we're not subject to you because you're not relating to us as a responsible authority should. You are making us vulnerable. You are preying on us. You are disposing of us and our households and our wealth in a very careless way as part of a vanity project. King George was responsible for the Revolutionary War. Plain and simple. The or else should be considered here. What if these leaders of their communities, of their households from all over the colonies had not declared independence? What then? Well, maybe, yeah, we would all be still part of the British Empire, but would that have been good on the terms King George was demanding? For that matter, earlier in British history, we have other examples of British kings kings of England, kings of Scotland, who trampled on the rights of their people. And a concerted effort was made to figure out biblically what is our responsibility here? Because it seems like it's really wrong what he's doing, but we have to have a good conscience before God and before one another. We have to have a good conscience. If we're going to tell the king, no, that's wrong, stop it. We have to be able to support that position from the Bible. The folks who lined up consistently on the side of the king, no matter what the king wanted to do, no matter what he was saying, no matter what he was trying to prevent his subjects from doing that they should have been doing, the folks who consistently lined up on the side of the king took one verse in Romans 13, and they made their whole political theology very expedient, very convenient off of one verse, be subject to the governing authority as if that's the only verse in the Bible, as if nothing else needs to be read by you, the subject of the king. The king can read all the rest, just like the Pope before the king could read all the rest and he'll tell you what it means. And you just listen to him. You just trust the Pope. Don't you dare question him. Don't you dare disagree. Even if by all appearances, he is objectively wrong. He's twisting the scripture He's ignoring the scripture. He's saying the opposite of what God has said. Even if that's the case, you just let the Pope tell you what God wants you to do. What ends up happening when that's the case is the Pope becomes your new God. If you do that with the king, well, then the king becomes your new God. You need to have Christ as your intercessor. You need to not have the Pope or the king, however good or wise he may present himself 
you need to not have the king or the pope be your intercessor, your intermediary. You need Christ. Only Christ will suffice. And if the king or the pope were worth anything, he would be telling you that too. Don't look to me. Look to Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. But if I, having a sinful nature like you do, go astray, please point it out to me. Please call me to repentance as well. Please correct me. Like Nathan the prophet after the incident with Uriah's wife and David. David was not right just because God had made him king. He wasn't right to send Uriah to the front lines to be cut down, to give private instructions, to put Uriah at the front and then have everybody else pull back so that Uriah could be cut down. David was not right just because he was king. Nathan was right to say, thou art the man. God was in the right to punish David and the whole kingdom. But the divine right of kings, folks, wouldn't hear it. And not only would they not hear it, but when the equivalent of Nathan the prophet in their day would come to them and say, this thing you are doing is not good. This is wicked. You should repent. This is an evil thing. Their response was not like David's, not to confess, repent, mourn, grieve their sin and the consequences of their sin. No, no. Their response was to persecute those who had come calling them to repentance. And insofar as some of those who would call them to repent were also men in authority, men with authority, the question had to be answered. In the case of the birth of this country, whether those men would become complicit or whether they would say, no, you cannot treat our subjects, our people, our colonies, our cities, our communities, our towns and villages. You cannot treat our households the way that you have a mind to. No, you have broken faith. We are going to keep the faith. And so what they did was remarkable, but all of the same kinds of objections that were raised then are raised now when it comes to maintaining this republic, this nation of laws, not ruled by men first and foremost, but ruled by laws. This is a republic. The same kinds of temptations and trepidations face us today as faced the Founding Fathers generation, as faced Deuteronomy 7. And that's why it's so important that we read passages like Deuteronomy 7 and we study them and we contemplate them because God's character has not changed and the character of man has not fundamentally changed apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And if we all had the Holy Spirit and if we were all being led by the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now, but we clearly are not all led by the Holy Spirit. Some of us are subject to other spirits, to lying spirits, deceitful spirits. And so we see here God telling Israel, you are my chosen people. When I tell you to drive out these nations, I mean completely. Don't intermarry with them. Don't think that you can change them. Don't think that you can bring them over to your side. Don't think that I will be pleased if you find some other way that you think is very clever to pacify them. If you give your daughters to their sons in marriage, you know what will happen your daughters will submit to their new Hittite husbands, Girgashite husbands, Amorite husbands, Canaanite, Perizzite, Hivite, Jebusite husbands, and we'll be right back where we started. If you take their daughters to be wives for your sons, then yes, even there, even though your sons will be the heads of their households, their wives will turn their hearts 
away from worship of Yahweh, obedience to Yahweh, faith in Yahweh, fear of Yahweh, love for Yahweh, your son's wives will lead them into all of the same sins that are causing me to tell you to drive out the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Parasites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And we will be right back where we started. What God wants here and what he promises in the way of a blessing, he's commanding and also he's promising to bless it all at the same time. It's not either God does it or we do it. It's both and. God does it with us. He uses us and he blesses us to do it and he calls us to it and he enables us to do it. What God wants here is a people holy and sanctified and totally committed to obeying him, serving him. And part of it is getting married. That's not a question. It's not if you feel like getting married. It's the presumption. You will be getting married. Your children will be getting married. When your children get married, not if your children get married, when your children get married, they need to be marrying those who fear Yahweh, those who love Yahweh, those who trust in Yahweh, those who obey Yahweh. And what will be the consequence of that? I will multiply you. Your children will have children after them. You will multiply in the land. Again, the founding fathers' generation understood this much better than we do. They were much more biblically literate in our day as part of the doctrinal minimalism and part of a drive to conform to the pattern of this world. So many Christians even are making excuses for why they don't want to get married. They don't want to have kids. But it's really just cowardice. It's not faithfulness. We see the temptation here in Deuteronomy 7 to think you know better, you're going to accomplish God's purposes better than he has a mind to through diplomacy. God doesn't want diplomacy here. He's commanding war be made. The time for diplomacy is past. Now it's time for war and judgment. And that war is not just to get the other side to the negotiating table. No, this is a war to destroy those who are evil before God's eyes. They have done evil because they are evil. They've spoken evil because they are evil. They're committed to destruction. They had their chance. They had their time. Time's up. And this is not just in the rear view mirror. This is also something coming with the second coming of Christ. We have to study passages like this to wrap our minds around what the eschaton means for those who are outside of Christ. Those who are not Christians will be judged by the saints. And the saints are already right now, today, in this context, pre-eschaton, supposed to be acting like they are going to be judging the world. We should be embracing that notion now. Live in light of it now by exercising good judgment within the household of faith now. Exercise good judgment. Judge with right judgment. Don't be afraid of them, God says, and also don't take pity on them. Don't have mercy on them. Show no mercy to them. That's what it's going to be like in the eschaton. By all means, show mercy now where you can show mercy, but exercise good judgment where you must exercise good judgment because we're commanded to judge with right judgment, not just to judge not. We, like the divine right of kings folks, need to become more acquainted with doing things because God said so, believing things because God said so, not doing things because God said not to, not saying certain things because God says the opposite. We need to be less dependent on 
what is the world doing? What will they accept? What will they affirm? As though the world really will judge the saints. No, no, that's backwards. That's inverted. The saints will judge the world and even angels. How much more so matters pertaining to this life, Paul says. Speaking of, let's touch on an article over at the Daily Wire, published June 29th, just last week, by Anthony Cash, who writes as follows. The U.S. Supreme Court unanimously strengthened religious liberty in the workplace Thursday, that is, last Thursday, ruling in favor of a Christian postal worker who lost his job for refusing to work on Sundays. The court's unanimous opinion in Groff v. DeJoy, authored by Justice Samuel Alito, overruled the decision of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, which held that the United States Postal Service, USPS, did not violate the religious accommodation rights of postal worker Gerald Groff under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Quote, this decision will give those religious minorities a fair shot in court and, one would hope, encourage more employers to adopt more inclusive workplace policies so that religious employees don't have to choose between their livelihood and their faith, end quote. Joshua McDaniel, director of Harvard Law School's Religious Liberty Clinic, said. Now, what's curious about this, just bear with me for a moment. What's curious about that bit of commentary from a Harvard Law School director is that the context here is a evangelical Christian. Groff is an evangelical Christian and longtime employee of the USPS, never worked Sundays because he believed that that was wrong. He believed he should be in church on Sundays and that Sunday is the day of rest. Therefore, it's the Lord's Day historically. There's been some debate about that. I would prefer Saturday be regarded as the Sabbath. But nevertheless, his religious convictions are in line with most of historical Christian understanding of the Lord's Day being an acceptable Sabbath for Christians. He never worked Sundays, and that was not in his initial job description. But, Cash writes, when the USPS started to deliver packages on Sundays because of a deal with Amazon, the Postal Service would require him to work on his Sabbath. To avoid conflict, he transferred to a different location. His new location started delivering on Sundays too. And he claimed USPS progressively disciplined him because he refused to work Sundays. He then resigned and sued the USPS for religious discrimination. What's curious here with the comment from the director out of Harvard is that this case is one of a evangelical Christian here in the U.S., and he's being described briefly in passing as a religious minority. That's curious. That might get missed by a lot of people, but it wasn't missed by me. An evangelical Christian in the U.S. used to be the majority. So what's up with that? What's happening? What's going on? that an evangelical Christian in the United States of America would be regarded as a religious minority. Very interesting. More to come on that, but I thought I would point it out in passing while we're here. In any event, the controversy in this case surrounded a 50-year-old standard from Transworld Airlines v. Hardison. In that case, the court held that an employer could deny an accommodation if it causes a, quote, more than de minimis cost, end quote, a legal term meaning that anything more than a, quote, very small cost, end quote, would be enough for an employer to legally deny any religious accommodation. The court held 
that Title VII's undue hardship language requires employers to show that the accommodation would impose a burden that is, quote, substantial in the overall context of an employer's business, end quote. Justice Alito stated that a business providing the accommodation would cause a small cost is not enough to establish undue hardship under Title VII. This means that an employer now needs to show a substantial hardship would be caused by the religious accommodation in order to deny it. Quote, costs imposed on a business due to a religious accommodation would have to rise to the level of hardship and adding undue means that the burden or adversity must rise to an excessive or unjustifiable level, end quote. Quote, when undue hardship is understood in this way, it means something very different from something that is a very small or trifling thing, end quote. Now, what's important here is if you start thinking of Christians as a religious minority, then the left is going to be in something of a paradox because they have been claiming to be the champions of every minority they can think of so long as they get more power by sponsoring the causes and the grievances that they themselves typically are trying to gin up for this express purpose. If they get more power in the process while they're following Solinsky's rules for radicals, which is satanic, by the way. It's dedicated, the book is, to Satan, and it's a satanic manipulation and fraud that's been perpetrated by the Democrats in this country for decades. But it's predicated on the claim that white American Christians represent the majority and the majority should not be able to trample on the rights of the minority. What happens when Christians are now being classified as a minority in the United States? What will the left do then with their historic animus against Christians, who they see as making a competing truth claim, a competing claim to the claim of the left. These are competing worldviews. They are competing religions, really, at root, especially as the radical left has, in recent years, increasingly brazenly embraced communism and socialism as the imperative. Christianity is standing in the way as they see it, even if Christianity is in the minority, I predict the left will keep on pushing to have Christians driven out of places of business or else forced, if they can force them, to knuckle under as a way of saying Caesar is Lord, just like in ancient Roman times. A big point of contention for the pagans with the Christians in the early Roman Empire was that these Christians said Jesus is Lord. And you're supposed to participate in the cult of the emperor if you are a good Roman citizen. That's what the pagans held. And they didn't like these Christians saying Jesus is Lord because it implied that actually Jesus was a higher authority than Caesar. And so they would demand of Christians, no, you say Caesar is Lord. And Christians would say, Christ is Lord. Christ is over Caesar. And that was the whole business for the pagans in ancient Rome. That's the whole business for the pagans in the United States of America right now. That's the whole business for the radical left. They don't want you saying Jesus is Lord in the workplace. And the USPS, by the way, the US Postal Service is not just some mom and pop store. They have no excuse whatsoever. This is targeting of conservative Christians because conservative Christians are saying Jesus is Lord. Whether I would agree that it's imperative that you not work Sundays, I affirm completely 
the validity of a Christian in America, of all places, saying, I want to have Sundays off so that I can go to church with my family, so that I can assemble together with the other saints as Christ has commanded. The USPS or some middle manager or some head who's appointed by the radical leftists saying, ooh, we don't like that. We can't have that. We won't tolerate that. They are revealing what their big problem is. Their big problem here is not that it would be undue hardship to give an accommodation to this postal worker. Their big problem is that this postal worker is saying Christ has more authority ultimately than the middle manager at the USPS or the director for that matter, or the person who appointed the director over the USPS. Whoever heads up the U.S. Postal Service, that is the Postmaster General right now, as it stands, whoever that person is, the PMG for short, is appointed to the post by the Board of Governors of the Postal Service. The Board of Governors members are in turn appointed by the President of the United States of America with the advice and consent of the U.S. Senate. This is not some private business. This is not some private company, some small mom and pop store in your town, the owner of which I just wasn't real familiar with the laws and the expectations. No, no. This is two steps removed, three steps removed from the president of the United States, who right now is Joe Biden. And the Senate could step in and say, if you're going to let a case like this go all the way to the Supreme Court, maybe you need to not be postmaster general. Now, that's what should happen. But such as it is, the Supreme Court has to weigh in and say, no, of course, of course, employees need to be accommodated if they went off on Sundays to go to church. And if somebody comes back to that and they say, well, but what if everybody wants off to go to church on Sundays? Then the answer is the same. You didn't used to deliver mail on Sundays for this very reason, but the radical left hates that. Oh boy, howdy, does that make them mad? And so what do they do? They lay snares, as is their nature to do, just like their father, the devil, does. Speaking of fathers and sons, though, a very sad case exists and persists of a certain Abraham Piper, son of John Piper, And an article or a post over at Upworthy caught my eye here this morning, published by Heather Wake on June 26th of this year, titled, Dad Urges Parents to Stop Worrying About Giving Their Kids a Good Future. Quote, isn't there something instead where the success could happen right now instead of 30 years down the road, if at all? End quote. Without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and play for you the audio here of Abraham Piper, just so you know what he sounds like, who he is, what his contributions typically are like to the public discourse, and then I'll have some thoughts for you. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. 
What if the goal of parenting isn't to give your kids a good future? It's impossible anyway. The future is uncertain. So is it the best use of our parental energy, our love, to continue trying to achieve the impossible? Isn't there something instead where the success could happen right now instead of 30 years down the road, if at all? Imagine if there was a goal for parents that we could actually achieve every day and know it. Well, how about this? Don't worry about giving your kids a good future. Give them a good past. A huge part of who we feel we are as individuals is our memories, our history. And our kids are becoming themselves every day in this respect, and we're in charge of it. In her book, The Philosophical Baby, Alison Gopnik notes that we actually do get to determine one very important aspect of our children's adult lives the childhood they bring into it. It's great to be smart, rich, mentally healthy, all things we tend to want for our children, but it's just as valuable, Gopnik points out, to have, quote, the ineradicable gift of a happy childhood. That's a trip to the park. Hugs before bed. Letting them choose the music in the car. It's doable. The present, we can almost control, or at least feel like it. And that feeling's all we're dealing with here, because we get to see our efforts work right now and not just hope that they will. Okay, so first things first. Abraham Piper, again, son of John Piper, very publicly, very flagrantly for years now, opposed to Christianity, very opposed to the Christian faith having an influence in the public, and he's trying to deconstruct it every chance he gets. So here he is talking about this idea of giving your kids a good future, and he's saying, oh, don't, right? That's not possible. And then he makes some other claims just in passing, which really bear slow down and uh, let's think about this kinds of responses. One thing he says is all we're dealing with here are good feelings anyways. Is that, is that all? Is that all we get to deal with here? We, we don't get to deal with any objective metrics, say, for what a successful life for our kids might entail or might involve. We don't have anything else to go on except for feelings. Um, hmm. Uh, no, that's not correct. That's not true. That's not good. Let's not do that thing. That's not wise. Uh, for another thing, he says some of the practical ways you could do this, give your child a good childhood and give them a good past is let them pick what you listen to in the way of music, in the car, when you're driving around. Those kinds of things, they have their place, all right? The biblical command to children, which he doesn't feel beholden to clearly anymore. Uh, the biblical command to children is to obey your father and your mother. But that doesn't mean mom and dad have to be telling you what to do all the time in every little thing. It's up to me as a father, for instance, what I command my children that they would obey. My children are not obligated to obey every adult. I don't have to give my children commands that please and suit every adult. That wouldn't even be possible, but I don't have to. But then when I give my kids a command, that's what it is. And my kids have a responsibility to obey their father and their mother. That is biblically a good childhood. Just letting your kids make all the decisions is not so good. But then the flip side is, and this is the balance, fathers don't exasperate your children. And so I have to pay attention to how I am commanding my children instructing my children, disciplining my children, directing my children, that the way in which I'm doing it is not going to needlessly frustrate them because that actually will turn them away from doing what is good, ultimately loving the Lord their God, ultimately loving God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving their neighbor as they love themselves. So I don't want to frustrate my kids. I'm not supposed to be a tyrant over my children, but then so also maybe some practical examples would include letting my kids pick the music from time to time or asking them, hey, what would you guys like to listen to? 
However, if we're going to make the claim we're not responsible for giving them a good future and that it's all feelings anyways, so all we can do is give them good feelings in the present, that is very dangerous parenting advice. That's not good parenting advice. And actually, too, might I just add, I think that sort of perspective that presents a false dichotomy, it's a false choice. You don't have to either be kind to your children, give them a good childhood now, care about their feelings, care about how they're doing internally, care about what would make them happy, or care about what's objectively true and good in relation to how they are brought up, care about what kind of a life they're going to have decades from now, whether they'll be, you know, functional members of their own family that they are father or mother over, functional members of their church, functional members of their community, whether they'll be able to provide for themselves, whether they'll have good manners, whether they'll be decent, upstanding citizens. You can care about that and at the same time also care about how they're feeling. It's not either or, right? So don't present it as a false choice the way that you're doing and then have nobody come up and say, ah, wait, 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 we can, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. You know, don't, don't do that, Abraham Piper. If you really want your kids to have a good present, they should be able to expect that, oh, I don't know, the world will still be here in 10 years, or we'll still have a country to be a part of, or, oh, I don't know, maybe they won't be debt slaves to the globalists, the WEF types. They won't live in a world where they're commanded to own nothing and be happy because it's a communist enterprise around the world. I should care about my kids having a good future, and I should care about protecting my children's inheritance. I should care about that as a father, as a mother. My wife should also care about that for our kids. And that's the basis for education. If all I care about is their feelings in the moment, then when they decide they don't want to do math, well, then I guess all we've got to work off of is feelings. And so, yeah, let's go back to finger painting and we won't require you to do your math today. Sure. Who cares about whether in the future you're able to get a good job and buy your own home and own a vehicle and make independent free choices for yourself over your affairs. Who cares about that and what bearing being able to do math and read has on all that? All I care about is your feelings. No, no, no. Of course. Of course not, right? Surely we can think more broadly than that. We can be adults actually and care about our children's future and their present. You know, their future past is their present right now. We can care about all of this at the same time and be thinking holistically. We should be thinking holistically. And oh, by the way, let's just make sure we're on the same page here about Abraham Piper and his views on God, his views on evangelicalism. I'm going to give you a language warning here before I read a quote over at medium.com in an article all about Abraham Piper and his deconstruction of his own upbringing, his own place in the universe. This is a direct quote from the tail end of that article. Quote, woke up from a dream the other morning feeling sorry for evangelical God, like actual pity. And the more I think about it, the more it tracks. That effers in a bad place, so stuck, so trapped in his own self, can't ever change, so absolutely alone, he's just making everything up, end quote. Here's an additional quote from the same video. Quote, nothing really matters. 
And this is what gives us the freedom to feel our own meaning and feel it with ease instead of a sense of fear or guilt. This, my friends, is the mother effing gospel. You like good news? The universe doesn't give a shit, end quote. That's John Piper's son, Abraham Piper, ladies and gentlemen. And this is why, by the way, I am not sold on the idea that when there are qualifications for overseers and deacons that Paul writes to Timothy and to Titus in the New Testament, talking about managing his own household well, his children, and their way of relating, having a either qualifying or disqualifying reflection on their father. Some say that only applies to children who are still at home. And once they grow up and they move out and they go out in the world, whatever they do, that shouldn't be accounted to their own fathers. Say, for instance, in the case of John Piper and Abraham Piper. I'm not sure. I, I'm not so sure about that. Part of the reason I'm not so sure about that is what if we put somebody in a position of the pastorate and he keeps up appearances and it appears as though he manages his own household well and it appears as though he's managing the business of the church well because that's the correlation in those qualifications lists. And then the year after that pastor retires because of old age or whatever, the year after he retires, that church absolutely implodes. First of all, theologically, but secondarily, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, the church just absolutely implodes because as long as that pastor was there, there was the appearance of health and vibrancy and vitality. And as soon as that church wasn't under that pastor, it didn't keep it together because it was all just an appearance anyways. My concern, if we put men into the pastorate who are fathering and discipling and training sons like Abraham Piper, and we say, well, that's fine, right? You can stay a pastor. You can continue on in the pastorate, regardless what your son Abraham is doing. If we say things like that, just because we like the way that they communicate, we like the way they explain things, we like the way that they engage interpersonally, we like the way they talk, or the way they write, we like the kinds of things that they say, are we potentially taking the risk that the year after a guy like John Piper steps down from his position of official leadership, or let's say the year after he passes away, every ministry that was under his guidance in the same way that his son was under his guidance for all those years, every ministry becomes somewhat like Abraham Piper. That's a concern. That's a real concern we should be paying attention to. And no, I'm not so sure that an adult child of a pastor, an overseer, rebelling and becoming flagrantly anti-Christian is no big deal as far as biblical qualifications go. If Abraham Piper were talking this way in Abraham Piper's father's home, what would we say then? And would we still try and rationalize it? Would we still say, let's find a way for John Piper to still be pastor? I think that would be a mistake. I think that would be a mistake. Also, oh, by the way, just dealing with Abraham Piper specifically, personally, just him. I've watched his videos. I follow him on Instagram because I want to track with this guy. I think he is uh, dangerous. I think he isn't just personally dangerous. I think he represents a larger danger in American evangelicalism. I think he's part of the reason why and part of the symptom of a Harvard law director 
regarding an American evangelical U.S. Postal Service worker as a religious minority. Abraham Piper projects onto God what he himself is doing, which is satanic. It really is. He projects onto God this pitiable state, right? He feels pity for God, which is to say, in his mind, he looks down on God. He says God is in a bad place. God is stuck. God is trapped in himself. God can't ever change. God is so alone, he's just making everything up. No, no. No, Abraham Piper. Wherever you see him talking about God here, just insert Abraham Piper because Abraham Piper is his own God. That's who he's actually really feeling sorry for is the God he's made in his own image. Not actually God. (laughs) No, he's a reprobate. Abraham Piper is wise in his own eyes. And yes, he is in a very pitiable state. Don't buy it just because he talks fast and seems really wise. He's wise in his own eyes. He is the woman folly who invites you over for bread that has been stolen and water that was not drawn from his own cistern. Don't buy it. That house goes down to Sheol, plain and simple. There was a additional Supreme Court ruling last week, however. This one, not unanimous. This one, 6-3, in the case of 303 Creative LLC versus Alanis, in which the Supreme Court of the United States of America cited the First Amendment in ruling that Lori Smith could not be forced by state civil rights law to design websites that run counter to her sincerely held religious beliefs. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, however, attacked this Christian web designer publicly, according to reporting over at the Daily Wire by Daily Wire News, which is to say we don't know who. And to give you some idea of what his comments were, I'll go ahead and play a clip of his being interviewed by CNN on this question. Here it is. Cut to take a listen. And I think it's very revealing that there's no evidence that this web designer was ever even approached by anyone asking uh, for a website for a same-sex wedding. Matter of fact, it appears this web designer only went into the wedding business for the purpose of, of provoking a case like this. And in that sense, I think there's something in common between this Supreme Court ruling and what we're seeing happening in state legislatures across the country, which is kind of a solution looking for a problem. Uh, in other words, uh, send these kinds of things to the courts and sending these kinds of things to state legislatures for the clear purpose of chipping away at the equality and the rights that have so recently been won in the LGBTQ plus community. And when they're doing that, it's at the expense of so many other issues that uh, Americans are asking for relief and support on, the kinds of economic issues that President Biden was emphasizing in his Bidenomics address about how we keep unemployment so low, uh, how we continue lowering costs for American families. Uh, You know, the the fact that this was relief from a situation that may have never happened in in the first place tells you everything you need to know about this agenda to use every instrument of government, courts and legislatures, to claw back at these rights for people who are just trying to go about their lives and just trying to be treated equally by businesses and by the government. All right. What evidence is there to suggest what Pete Buttigieg is saying here? What evidence is there to support the claim, the insinuation, the 
trying to put the shoe on the other foot that he is attempting on CNN with Dana Bash. What evidence is there that this is actually conservative Christians in America or in the state of Colorado who are looking for trying to find trouble with LGBTQ plus the homosexuals, the transgendered people trying to start businesses just so they can go to the Supreme Court. What what evidence is there that this is actually evangelical Christians who started it, who are causing all of the trouble? What evidence is there to support this insinuation that we have bigger problems to worry about? We have more important things to deal with. This is a big distraction that these evangelical Christians are wasting time in the courts and with civil rights litigation. What evidence is there to support the narrative and the timeline that Pete Buttigieg is trying to tell the American people they should superimpose on a case like this? Any? Any any evidence whatsoever? How about this? How about let's suggest a counter-narrative? You have Christians who start small businesses wherein they take photographs of people's special events or they bake cakes or other goods for people's special events or they make websites for people's special events, for instance, weddings. How about this as the narrative that those Christians who start those small businesses who are very publicly saying, I do this and I pursue excellence because I love Jesus and I'm going to do things in such a way as to assert that I believe Jesus is Lord. And then you actually have homosexuals and activists wanting to push for more normalization of homosexuality in American society, more secularism, more libertinism, more leftism, who seek out those businesses and try to get those businesses to bake them the cake or take the photographs or build the website just because they know that those Christians are more likely to say, no, I can't do that. I can give you this over here that wouldn't involve affirming your lifestyle that I would call you to repentance of, but I can't bake that cake for that event. I can't take photographs for that event. I can't build a website for that event. What if it's actually the activists for homosexuality and transgenderism who are seeking out and targeting small business owners who are Christians to try and make examples of them and try to drive them either to being quiet in the public square and in the marketplace or to try and drive them out of business, to try and punish them in such a way as to make other Christians be quiet and say, Caesar is Lord. What if it's actually the radical left that is targeting Christians and not Christians who are causing all this trouble by saying, I can't do that? I mean, think of it. Decades ago, this would not have been a debate, but because of the radical left insinuating itself in popular culture and in the corporate news media and in political action committees and with a certain particular political party, the Democratic Party, and in the public education system and in higher education, because of the radical left insinuating itself to culture, now we're at a point where Christians are said by 
transportation secretaries in the Biden administration to have the burden of proof to establish why this is not just a waste of everybody's time that they would say, no, I can't do that. Why would it be the burden of proof on the people who say, I don't in good conscience participate in these kinds of things because it's against my religious convictions? Why would the conservative Christians have the burden of proof? For that matter, too, when we think about social media, why would Christians have the burden of proof to establish why they would have the right to disagree with or criticize or question or make counterproposals with regards to the leftist activation of resentment or the framing of all of these things as oppressor versus oppressed, with Christians consistently being the ones cast as the villains, as the oppressors. Why would conservative Christians, when they want to respond to that and prevent their own destruction after a fashion, their own persecution after a fashion, why would Christians be the ones who have the burden of proof to establish why they should have a right to say, this is not okay. Actually, there's another way to look at this. Also, for that matter, why is it when Christians are the ones being targeted and harassed in the courts by certain leftist state governments, like the one we have here in Colorado, why is it that Christians, when they present the relatively mild and tame concession of, okay, well, I just at least don't want to participate with my small business, with my own personal talents. I don't want to participate in affirming this and celebrating this. Why is it that Christians would have the burden of proof before they do something like what I'm doing? Podcasting, blogging. It's headed there, ladies and gentlemen. It's headed there that Christians will be framed by exactly the kind of thinking that Pete Buttigieg is communicating on CNN. Christians are the ones who have to prove that they are allowed to participate in the public discourse, unless the Christians are willing to say Caesar is Lord or the LGBTQ plus lobby is Lord. That's what this is really about. But let's do remember our chronology. Let's remember our history as a country. That kind of thinking that the left is engaged in, it's not new. It's not novel. The kind of thinking that conservative Christians in particular are engaged in and communicating and acting from is also not new. The conflict between the radical left and conservative Christians in this country is not new. This is old hat for the radical left. They are consistently anti-clerical. They are consistently anti-Christian. They're consistently anti-Christ. And yes, if they can get a victory, possibly in the courts, that's a good day for them. But even if they can just publicly harass anybody who would dare to look legitimate as a foil to their agitations, even if they can just publicly harass a small business owner or a private individual or an employee of the USPS, they'll take that. And then on the other end, they'll portray themselves as the victims. Oh, they're just trying to mind their own business. Really? Really? It's these Christians who are agitating. It's these Christians who are putting undue restrictions on the USPS by saying, I don't want to deliver mail on Sundays. I've never had to deliver mail on Sundays. It wasn't part of my job description originally to deliver mail on Sundays. Oh, it's these Christians. Oh, they're always on about something like not working on Sunday so they can take their families to church. 
out of obedience to God. That's these Christians who are always causing trouble by telling a gay couple they don't want to celebrate their homosexuality. It's these Christians. It's a hop, skip, and a jump from what Pete Buttigieg is saying to a out and out. Right now it's unofficial, but soon enough it could be official. Two-tiered society in which the Christians relegate the lowest order politically and economically, actually very similar to what Abraham Piper is communicating. It starts culturally, and then it moves on to the political space. It starts theologically, and then it moves on to the cultural scene. But actually, even just from a theological standpoint, so much of that is being decided in the home when a young couple gets married or they don't. When a young married couple has kids or they don't, when a young married couple with kids sends their kids off to leftists to be indoctrinated in leftism, or they homeschool them, or they send them to a private school, or they send them to a tutor who is going to give them a good private education that honors Christ as Lord. Speaking of, I'll play for you a bit of audio here from a father who showed up at a school board meeting and answered a claim, a false claim, an easily disproven claim, that evidence could not be found for the dangers of permitting so-called transgendered students to use whichever bathroom or locker room or shower they want to. Not to be staff embedded the tweet from Citizen Free Press, the post from Not to Be is dated June 30th. The tweet from Citizen Free Press is dated June 30th. I don't know when this video was shot. I don't know when this school board meeting occurred. I don't even actually know precisely where this school is. But nevertheless, with all those disclaimers, let me go ahead and play for you cut three. Take a listen. Several weeks ago, in a vote to allow trans students to use whatever bathroom they wish, you assured us that these policies were perfectly safe, as neither yourself nor law enforcement could provide a single example of any trans student assaulting any girl in any bathroom, in any school, in any state, anywhere in all, in fact. But not to worry, since you could locate them, I took the trouble to. See, Loudoun County, Virginia, where last year, under district policy, A trans student was allowed into the women's bathroom where he assaulted a girl. To cover it up, they moved him to another school where he did it again. See Irvine, California last month where a trans student entered the women's locker room and flashed the girls there. When they confronted him, he mercilessly beat them. This happened again in Gwinnett County, Georgia. This happened again in Oklahoma City. This happened again in Ohio where a trans man was allowed to use the locker room where he was arrested for flashing little girls. The judge dropped the charges after he ruled that this man was too fat for them to see anything. Last month, in this city, a man using they, them pronouns in a scene straight out of Silence of the Lambs hunted down and killed a female jogger because he, quote, wanted to look just like her. And before you say that these are anecdotal evidence, Just note that in a survey of trans inmates in federal prisons, half 
were convicted of sexual assault, and 90% were convicted of violent crimes, well above the general prison population. Now, it should also be noted that in each of these cases, each of these perpetrators had either changed their pronouns, had undergone transition, or had received gender-affirming therapy and accommodations thereof. Why is this important to note? Probably for the same reason we recognize as a society that you do not affirm that people with anorexia can be healthy in any way. You do not affirm that somebody with schizophrenia is hearing voices. And you do not affirm that somebody in a manic episode is having great ideas. Because when you leave somebody to languish in their false mental state, i.e. men who think they are women, they will inevitably lash out and harm themselves and those around them. Hurt people hurt other people. But I don't want to pretend and have the hubris to think that I'm going to be the one to change your mind. I'm happy to share any and all of these examples with you. But you will most likely leave here tonight believing that men can become women, affirming care works, and that you made the right vote. But you will no longer be able to look into the eyes of your constituents and honestly say that you are unaware of the assaults that inevitably take place when we declare to women, you have no right to privacy. Thank you very much. Well said. Well said. Hats off to this gentleman. I don't know his name. I don't know his background. I don't need to because he's right. This is objectively just the facts, ma'am, like Sergeant Joe Friday from Dragnet. Just the facts, ma'am. I see the very last still before the video cuts off in the tweet from Citizen Free Press, Peoria, as the camera switches to the school board. Peoria looks like it's superimposed on the wall behind where they're seated. So I would guess that this is probably Peoria, Illinois, but suffice to say, This is not just Peoria, Illinois. This is all over the U.S. And this is something that the radical left in the U.S. is trying to export to other countries. This is not just a difference of opinion. This is predatory behavior. And it's enabling from men and women who either hope to gain in the expansion of their own powers or they relish the thought of preying on not just these young ladies, not just these women, but also their parents as well. Now think about this. If this becomes the loyalty test, like Caesar is Lord versus Jesus is Lord, if this becomes the loyalty test in our day for enacting Mao's cultural revolution, then actually something very, very similar to what Abraham Piper is communicating about, don't worry about, don't try to give your kids a good future, only care about feelings in the present, all the while sit back as I talk down about God and about those who believe in God and those who love God and those who fear God and those who obey God, don't worry about giving your kids a good future. Just give them a good present. Just give them choice over whatever they want to do. And all you can hope for is happy feelings. What Abraham Piper is communicating is very similar to the sentiments of radical leftists throughout the last several centuries that the radical left has been making its inroads in the West. Mao had a very similar attitude in China. He was very candid about it. He didn't care what came after. He didn't care what happened to his wife and his kids after he was gone. 
He just pleaded with the CCP bosses as he was getting old and vulnerable. Don't do anything to me yet. I don't care what you do to my family after I'm gone. I don't actually care what happens to the Chinese people after I'm gone. Just leave me be until I'm out. I'm not far from the end anyways. But the other thing about Mao is he enjoyed watching tapes. According to Mao, the untold story, he enjoyed watching tapes of the cultural revolution playing out in small towns and communities and cities across China. He enjoyed seeing tapes of citizens, aged men who otherwise would have been honored and respected, mothers and grandmothers who otherwise would have been honored and respected in their communities being dragged into the middle of communities where they would be yelled at, screamed at, cursed at, called all kinds of ugly things, spat on, slapped, kicked, punched, beaten, and in some cases, brutally murdered. He enjoyed watching tapes of those kinds of things. Why? Because he knew that he was actually the one who had initiated those things. He knew that he was actually the one who was in control. He felt powerful, just like many rapists feel powerful when they rape an individual. Man, woman, child, a rapist ultimately wants to feel power over this other person. That's why they do what they do in most cases. It's not first and foremost a sexual thing. It's first and foremost a power thing. It's an, I want to feel like I am stronger than you and stronger than anybody else that would make me stop kind of a thing. And insofar as Mao was doing this to a whole country, he felt not just more powerful than a whole country's worth of men, women, and children. He was subjecting to the Cultural Revolution. He also felt more powerful than all those Chinese who had gone before, whose legacy and tradition and artifacts were still being honored and celebrated in China right up to the point of the Cultural Revolution. That's also part of why the left is destroying any artifact of American tradition they can get their hands on, because it makes them feel powerful. And the ones behind the scenes who fund and who officiate, they get to feel the most powerful of all. Because if any one of their foot soldiers or their useless idiots ever get to be a threat to them, even if it's in the name of the revolution that someone in their own movement starts to become a threat to their own power, their own position, they can just move to the left of that person and retroactively declare them an enemy of the revolution and have them destroyed, just like they're having everybody else who is out and out a conservative destroyed, they can say this person is a counter-revolutionary and they need to be destroyed. It's the same thing with the transgender moment. And so those who think they can save their own wealth and power and position in the community by participating in this need to be aware, the revolution will come for them as well unless they are committed stubbornly to mediocrity and to keeping their head down. Unless they're committed to that for the rest of their lives, never having anything that the party bosses would feel jealous of, envious of, resentful of, threatened by, unless they're committed to obscurity and anonymity for the rest of their lives. Sooner or later, someone will want what they have, or at least not want them to have it. Someone who is a sadist, who enjoys watching other people suffer because it makes them feel powerful, will single them out sooner or later, because they won't be able to be friends with everybody all the time. And even if they were, that too would be seen as a threat. 
because not everybody is equally popular, equally charismatic, equally well-spoken, equally dynamic, equally funny, equally creative. What you get is what you got in China, what you got in the Soviet Union. What we will get here, if we do that same thing here, is much the same. And everything that's been built up from the pursuit of excellence, predicated on the belief that there is such a thing as truth and beauty and goodness, all of it will come crumbling down. And we ourselves will tear it down as the revolutionaries demand that we tear it down. They'll claim it has all these faults, but don't you dare ask them, could they do better? Because as soon as you do, you become an enemy of the revolution. You become a counter-revolutionary. You become the next ripe target. We have to, as one people say, no, absolutely not. And we have to hold accountable the predators. And we have to either convince them to stop being predatory the way that they're being right now, or we have to destroy them. Because what's coming is, if not that, the destruction of every innocent person. In fact, even just someone being innocent next to somebody who is guilty, who has innocent blood on their hands, even someone being innocent will be looked on with envy and resentment because that innocence is seen as something that the guilty person no longer has. And because they don't have a conception of Christ having atoned for sin, because they aren't willing to repent and confess and turn away from their sins and make restitution insofar as they can, because they're not willing to do that, because they have no capacity to do that, they will either destroy the innocence of the innocent or they will destroy the innocent. What is coming is hell on earth in the United States and in every other country over which the United States holds sway. But then actually, really truly, this is where those predicting the rise of the CCP, the rise of communist China as a superpower, not just to rival the US, but even to surpass the US, they're right to predict what they're predicting because the CCP will do to the US. If the US tries to catch up with, if the radical left in the US tries to catch up with the CCP, thinking that the radical left will be getting a handshake and welcome as co-equals with the radical left in China, they have another thing coming because the CCP has been at it longer and they have a more finely tuned machine of oppression, which will come for the radical left in this country as well. You think you admire Mao. There were plenty of people who admired Mao and celebrated Mao and had Mao's little red book of philosophical plagiarism and nonsense. There were people who were just like you in China who were destroyed, whose families were destroyed, whose livelihood was destroyed, whose standing in the community, even under a communist Chinese paradigm, was destroyed because if you get too good at it, there can only be one as far as the CCP is concerned. And if you object, if you complain, if you say, well, well let's negotiate, whoa, ho, 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 that's not the way this works. You will submit to the will of the people as told by this person who, as it just so happens, is always a mouthpiece for Satan himself at the end of the day under a Marxist system. Why do I say that? Because Marxism is dedication to Satan. It's at war with the saints. It's at war with the scriptures. It's at war with Christ himself, ultimately. As such, it won't succeed, but by golly, for as long as it persists, it's going to try to tear down 
and destroy anyone and anything it possibly can, because the long game is Satan still thinks he can win, apparently. And yet, he can't. He can't win. And we should take the wins where we can get them in defending what is good, defending what is true, defending what is beautiful, defending the innocent. For a case study, a simple example of what this looks like, we actually have a little bit of good news coming out of Canada. Not much these days, but we have a little bit. Some reporting by May Reed Elordi over at the Daily Wire, June 28th, tells us Planned Parenthood has been banned from schools in one Canadian province after parents complained about a graphically sexual resource ending up in the hands of a high schooler. Minister of Education Dustin Duncan on Thursday suspended the Planned Parenthood in Regina, the capital of Saskatchewan, from presenting information in schools. Quote, I believe as Minister of Education and frankly as a parent, it is completely inappropriate to be in a classroom. End quote, Duncan said of the controversial resource. The presenter here from a local Planned Parenthood speaking to ninth graders during a sexual health class at Lumsden High School in Saskatchewan, brought ABC sex vocabulary cards which graphically describe sexually explicit acts, and at least one high school student reportedly got their hands on them. The graphic resource was a pamphlet titled Sex from A to Z, which calls itself a set of cards intended for gay, bi, and queer young people. Quote, while the presentation itself was aligned with the Saskatchewan curriculum, the presenter brought a secondary resource, which was not. This secondary resource, consisting of an A to Z sexual vocabulary, was inappropriate for students. Now, you might ask yourself, what in the world does a set of flashcards, no pun intended, but probably quite literally flashcards, what does a set of flashcards trying to normalize homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, have to do with Planned Parenthood. I'll tell you, these things go together because Margaret Sanger was something of the midwife for the sexual revolution in America. She demanded, publicly argued for, behind closed doors with intellectuals of the time, socialists of the time, in her day, women's liberation, to include the normalization of homosexuality and the abolition of every kind of restraint morally on what people do with their reproductive organs. That was part of, and at the heart of, why she was demanding legalization of birth control and abortion. That's why her organization is called Planned Parenthood, because it's actually a revolutionary sexual ethic that Planned Parenthood is peddling. And when I say that, I don't mean revolutionary sexual ethic like the idea that you would be intentional about how many kids you have, when you have those kids. I mean revolutionary sexual ethic as in do what you want and call it love. I mean a sexual ethic that demands total autonomy be respected with regards to what a man or woman wants to do sexually. That is diametrically opposed to and totally at odds with the commands of God. It's totally at odds with the love of God, the fear of God, faith in God, obedience to God. And so when Planned Parenthood comes into a high school, they're not just teaching kids about 
how babies are born. They're not just teaching kids about how a egg is fertilized by sperm and what all options there are to try and prevent that fertilization without just not having sex. They are also promoting libertinism. They're promoting sexual revolution. They're promoting this idea that kids, high schoolers, but really kids of all ages are sexual beings. This is comprehensive sex education. They're promoting the idea that you are your own. Your body is your own. You weren't bought with a price, which is to say they are at war with the idea that you were bought with a price and therefore you should honor God with your bodies. They're at war with the idea that God is the one who gave commands with regards to marriage and having children, and he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. They're at war with the idea that God ultimately is the authority over your sexuality and your identity more broadly. But their way of attacking the idea that you would be identified with Christ is to start with positive association with their brand of Satanism and sexual excitement. Let's pair sexual excitement with rebellion against God. Oh, and if that doesn't work, if you have some concerns about that, if you object to that, you want women to die because they've billed themselves as a women's healthcare provider. No, they're not providing healthcare. They murder innocent children. Why? Because they lost their innocence a long, long time ago, and they don't want anybody else to have innocence when they don't have innocence. They resent little babies because they've given up on innocence, because in fact, they hate the idea of what is innocent being defined by God, because at root, they hate God. And just like Deuteronomy 7 says, God will repay those who hate him to their face. So we should feel sorry for the folks over at Planned Parenthood. We should feel sorry for Abraham Piper. We should feel sorry for the people who are simple, who accept the invitation to sup with the woman folly. But at the same time, also, we should absolutely protect our kids from these people. Because at the end of the day, our having a good future as a people, our having a nation to call home, depends on our not worshiping the pagan gods of these peoples. If we want to have a nation and if we want to be blessed in the land, if we want to have a good life and for God to be our God and for God to provide for and protect us, we cannot have mercy on this ideology. We cannot spare it. We cannot mix it in with our way of thinking about things. I think that's the equivalent. In terms of ideas, that's the equivalent in our day to Deuteronomy 7. I mean, for one thing, we shouldn't have our sons and daughters intermarrying with the sons and daughters of leftists unless those sons and daughters are willing to turn away from leftism and know Christ and love Christ. And by the way, lest anybody get the mistaken notion that I'm saying, don't let your son or daughter get married to somebody whose background is messy or their family of origin is messy. I'm not saying that. You know, if one of my sons takes an interest in a young woman who grew up in a family where they were radically left, my first question is going to be, is this young lady in agreement with that or has she repented and turned away from it? 
very much like in the story of Ruth. Where you go, I will go, she says to Naomi. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And that is the precondition for Ruth being able to marry Boaz and ultimately being in the genealogy of Jesus. Also, oh, by the way, being in the genealogy of David, the precondition is she's turned away from the worship of these false gods. She's turned toward the worship of Yahweh God. So also these radical leftists can't be intermarrying their ideas with our ideas to where we say, we can have all of the above. We can have our cake and eat it too. No, it's an either or. This actually is an either or. Some of these things that are put forward are false choices, false dichotomies, but this is not. This is an accurate and true dichotomy. You cannot worship Yahweh God, love Yahweh God, fear Yahweh God, trust in Yahweh God, obey Yahweh God, and also the gods of the nations. Can't do it. These things do not go together. If you say you're doing both, well, then you're really just worshiping the gods of the nations. You're taking part in this rebellion and woe to you. Turn back now. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. This is why we homeschool after all, but I got to run. Go check out my book if you want to read more in the way of a convincing argument for why you should homeschool your kids, why you should encourage your friends and family to homeschool their kids. Some of that why will inform how we do it. If you're not sure how you would do it, first make sure you understand the reason why you would do it and you're convinced in your own mind on those things. But again, I got to run. More to come. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.